Today is March 15th, 2021. The Biden administration grapples with how to deal with the gigantic flow of immigrants over the southern border. The Democrats weigh options on changing the rules of the filibuster, and the White House sets out on the Help Is Here tour. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another banger for you here today. A great episode. Honestly, arguably, the best episode that we have done so far because we are looking at all the hottest stories on both the left and the right side of the aisle, doing our best to parse the difference and find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. I know that many of you see the incredible amount of political divisiveness that we see within our country today, which we will actually get into pretty deeply and pretty heavily in one of our stories. And y'all want to be able to find a way to have good conversations conversations that are hopefully beneficial to all of the people involved and to be able to have opinions and hold them strongly and have them to be educated, but of course, be willing and able to reach across the aisle and find some sort of middle ground. Well, that is our goal here on Split the Difference podcast. Also, a quick announcement before we hop into our first story. We have our fourth guest episode coming out tomorrow. That's right. Bells are ringing. Tomorrow, we have our fourth guest episode, and y'all are going to absolutely love it. I sat down and had a fantastic conversation. Our guest was smart. He had a lot of great points to bring up, and I think that many of you will thoroughly enjoy the conversation that we have. So, Please be rem- please remember, hop in and take a listen to that episode tomorrow when it rolls out, because I think y'all are going to enjoy it. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, there are a record number of migrants coming over the southern border. And over the weekend, the Department of Homeland Security admitted to this record number of migrants coming over. Uh, which has thus far not really been a topic of conversation for most of the Biden administration. There almost kind of seems like there's been a little bit of a denial of the huge problem that is amounting there at the southern border over the past month. Uh, But it is growing and it is growing larger every single day. Uh, So the head of the DHS was now prompted to call upon FEMA for backup. So Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS lead, or head, uh, said that he's calling FEMA as part of a 90-day government-wide plan to deal with the rise in migrants coming over the border, mainly due to changes in immigration policy that Biden enacted uh, since the beginning of his presidency. So they said this in a statement, quote, the federal government is responding to the arrival of record numbers of individuals, including unaccompanied children at the southwest border. Since April 2020, the number of encounters at the border has been rising due to ongoing violence, natural disasters, food insecurity, and poverty in the Northern Triangle countries of Central America. The federal government is working around the clock to move unaccompanied children from U.S. Customs and Border Protection to the United States Department of Health and Human Services care to place them with a family member or sponsor until their immigration case is adjudicated. The risks posed by the spread of COVID-19 have made this mission all the more difficult. So he didn't Alejandro Mayorkas didn't really come out and and blame the fact that obviously incredibly loosened immigration policy is really kind of what started a lot of this, um, but instead kind of blamed a multitude of other factors, which of course are also at play as well. So let's go ahead, hop in real quick. This is MSNBC, or I'm sorry, this is NBC News reporting on this within the last week. 
Now, more than 3,200 unaccompanied migrant children are in Border Patrol custody, and that's a record high. Nearly half of the children, 1,400 of them, have been held beyond the three-day legal limit in holding cells not designed for children. And despite the Biden administration's calls to end family detention, a senior border official says they're continuing the practice. NBC News Justice correspondent Julia Ainsley joins us now. Julia, good morning. Let's start with your latest reporting. It seems the Biden administration administration and immigration and customs are not on the same page. What's the latest? Yeah, it's interesting, Savannah. I think the whiplash here is coming from the political wishes and wills of people in the Biden administration. Biden is a candidate himself who said families don't belong in detention. You have Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, saying families don't belong in detention. And then you have a split with the people who are actually doing the operations on the ground. And what they're seeing is a rising number of immigrants. And they want to be able to keep using family detention as what they told me is a tool. Okay, so uh, under federal law, unaccompanied children are required to be transferred to federal facilities uh, within 72 hours of being apprehended. So basically, if they find unaccompanied children that have crossed the border illegally, they are allowed to hold them within uh, basically kind of these large detention type centers or cells in order to be able to keep them there while they're processing and moving these children out to other places. However, this is currently not happening. So this is largely due to, of course, the extremely large influx of migrants right now coming across the border, especially the unaccompanied children, and also because of COVID restrictions as well. So children are currently being apprehended at the border whenever they come across and then they're sitting in detention facilities for very long periods of time while everything is trying to be processed. So one of the most difficult tasks that border security has and the Department of Health and Human Services has uh, is trying to find a sponsor or somebody that is uh, here in the United States to place that child with. So they are uh, allowed to be released to a family member or a sponsor here in the United States if they can find those people. But finding those people is incredibly difficult to do. So many of them probably have family members here, but they may not be here legally, so they may be incredibly worried about actually going and presenting themselves to Customs and Border Patrol or the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, It's very, very difficult sometimes to get in contact with these people because oftentimes if they do have sponsors that are here and they are here illegally, we don't have hardly, we have hardly any information on these people that are uh, here that would be able to accompany or sponsor or have the child. And I mean, if you think about a five or six year old kid coming across the border, all right, no adult is with them at all. And you have to bring this kid into a facility that likely doesn't have enough resources to make sure that they're properly and adequately taken care of, and then communicate with that child and figure out from them if they have any family within the country. You're talking to a five-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, or a 10-year-old. It is going to be very, very difficult because that child's going to be absolutely terrified, I'm sure. There, you know, there is... Of course, they have plenty of people down uh, at the southern border that can speak Spanish, but they're in a foreign country, right? They're not in the country that they've, you know, grown up in. They've likely just traveled thousands of miles. They're probably incredibly tired. And so there are now thousands of kids coming across the border right now, and there's no way that Border Security and Department of Health and Human Services uh, can find all of the families for these kids if they have any in the United States, okay? Especially not in under 72 hours. That is like a, that is, I mean, that is a crazy short amount of time to be able to solve an incredibly difficult problem there. So one of the biggest changes that Biden made when he got into office 
was changing the former administration, the Trump administration's migrant protection protocols, the MPPs, okay? These were basically a set of rules that sent immigrants back to Mexico if they crossed the border illegally to be detained there while they awaited hearings in the United States. So Biden switched back to the Obama-era catch-and-release policy, okay? That basically, um, if you enter the United States illegally from the southern border, then you are you know taken in, you're apprehended, you're detained, and then... You are released in the United States to await your immigration hearing with an immigration judge. So oftentimes these hearings can take months to be able to schedule and to be able to get together because there are an incredible amount of cases to adjudicate. And as a result, you you know are releasing illegal immigrants into the United States that may have weeks or months before their, their hearing comes up. And we don't know where they go oftentimes. So a lot of times they don't actually show up to their hearings or there's poor communication around where their hearing is or where when it's going to be. And they don't know how to get there. They don't know what to do because they're probably in a foreign, right there in a foreign country. They don't, they don't know what to do. Um, so uh, one of these, this catch and release is, is actually leading to uh, a large portion of immigrants that now realize that they can come into the United States illegally and still, you know, stay in the United States. So, then it comes down to you have to talk about what do you what do you do with the children okay like what what are you going to do there's been widespread pushback from the left on having specific federal facilities or camps uh, that the children can be sent to this is like the great example of the kids in cages thing and this is what's happening currently at the southern border where they're trying to you know figure out where to put all these kids but they don't have enough places to put all these kids that came across the border unaccompanied by an adult and they're like, well, we can't just have these kids sitting around in these detention facilities and it, you know, behind all these, you know, mesh and wire fences. Like we have to send them somewhere, somewhere that they're going to be more comfortable and at least they can wait out until they actually have a hearing. Um, the tough part is even if you have a catch and release policy for adults, you can't have that same catch and release policy with the child for a multitude of obvious reasons, right? I mean, you can't have a seven-year-old that you're just like, all right, cool, we've got you on the books, come back, your hearing is going to be in three weeks with, you know, a judge down the road, you got to figure out a way to get there, and over the next three weeks, you know, you just got to figure it out on your own. Seven-year-old, you can never do that with. So there literally aren't enough resources or areas to place the kids right now because there are just so many of them. And the reluctance to just build and place kids in federal detention facilities is absolutely understandable. I, I get and I get why people, there is pushback to that because it seems like you're just taking all these children and you're rounding them up and you're just putting them in a bunch of trailers, right? And that that's a bad look. It, do, it doesn't look good. But Without the proper money and resources, the problem is only going to increase. There are currently multiple migrant caravans that are making their way up through Central America, up through Mexico, coming towards the United States because they see and recognize the incredibly relaxed policies and immigration policies that Biden has you know, put forth over the past couple of months. They realize catch and release is back. They realize that uh, with a, a gigantic amount of people coming across, they, they literally don't have the money to be able to actually uh, get everybody processed through the way that they need to. There's a better chance of them actually getting through and not getting caught or apprehended by border control. So you have more people pouring in illegally every day, and the problem is only being exacerbated because... There's a refusal to admit that there's a problem, one. And then secondly, they're not throwing nearly the money and the resources at it that they need to. There's a there's a, for some reason this like this fight on the left side of the aisle against ramping up any type of border security because they 
have said that it's racist or they've said that it's not right or that uh, these people aren't illegal, right? And the idea is if you ramp up border security so that you can actually process the people that are coming through and you actually get them in and process through legally, well, then you don't have nearly as much of a problem. A lot of it is also, you need more people down there. You need more people working. The last thing they need to do is strip ICE. The last thing they need to do is strip the Border Control and Protection Agency of all of its funding and powers. There needs to be more resources poured into it because if you're going to have relaxed immigration policies, you have to at least have the resources to be able to handle the influx of immigrants that are going to come. And it looks like the Biden administration is just not doing that. So, with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So the Democrats weigh changing the filibuster. So this past week, past week and a half, the Democrats have been schmoving and shaking. All right. They have been getting, I mean, working hard to get their agenda passed. They've got, you know, control of the House. They've got control of the Senate and they've got control of the presidency. And they are coming in and rocking and rolling, trying to get a lot of their agenda passed. So they passed the gigantic COVID stimulus bill, as many of you heard about. And if you listened to the podcast last week, we talked about it a bit. Valued at one point nine trillion dollars with a T. That's basically going to be sending money to all corners of the economy, something that Biden campaigned very, very hard on. They also passed the H.R. 1 voting rights bill in the uh, in the House within the last week or so with the expressed aim at tackling voting rights issues in the United States. And on both of these, there was not a single Republican vote for either of the measures in either sides of Congress. Okay, so as many of you recognize, politics has become increasingly partisan over the years, especially over the past 15, 10, 12, we'll say 12 to 15 years. I really was starting within the Bush era. I mean, I guess it's always been partisan, but it has become so hyper-partisan and then building up to Donald Trump, who just absolutely just tore the veil off of American politics. Nobody's willing and want to play nice anymore. So many Democrats are saying, it's now reached a fevered pitch, which means that there needs to be some sort of rule changes uh, because the vast majority of the legislative goals that Biden, the Biden administration has set and wants to push will require 60 votes in the Senate in order to pass. This means that they will have to convince at least 10 Republicans to sign on to the bills and the measures that they want to be able to get through. It seems incredibly unlikely as many Republicans, as we've just said, have made it very clear that they're unwilling to negotiate on a lot of these topics, okay? Instead, they just will filibuster bills to stop them from passing. So let's hop in real quick and take a, uh, we'll take a listen. This is the Washington Post doing a bit of a history on the filibuster and talking a bit about some of the changes that are coming down the pike now. Many Democrats want to get rid of the filibuster altogether, but the support for that isn't there with senators like Kirsten Sinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, both saying there are no circumstances under which they would get rid of the filibuster. Manchin talked about the idea of reinstating the so-called talking filibuster. The talking filibuster would require senators to actually take to the floor and talk at length to hold up legislation instead of just serving notice that they want to block it. I rise today to begin to filibuster John Brennan's nomination for the CIA. But while some of the Democratic Party are floating this as an alternative to eliminating the filibuster altogether, there are some drawbacks. 
One of them is that by filibustering a piece of legislation, it could hold up other votes in the Senate, including nominees from the president. Back in the 1970s, the Senate reformed the filibuster to reduce the threshold from two-thirds to three-fifths, or 60 votes. Okay, so uh, it's clear at this point that the Democrats do not have the support that they would need in order to end the filibuster completely. There is a large portion of especially the farther left side of the Democrats that have been wanting to get rid of and have talked about ending the filibuster for a while simply because they want to be able to get through every single one of the pieces of their agenda and the policies that they want. I mean, push through on a simple majority if they can through the Senate. And they know that the filibuster is the only tool that the Republicans have right now at their disposal in order to stop a lot of their agenda that they want to get pushed through. So other options are beginning to be weighed. So Joe Manchin, a Democrat out of West Virginia, uh, he was actually mentioned in that video that we just watched as well. Joe Manchin is uh, an incredibly moderate Democrat. He's honestly like sits pretty much right in the center of the aisle and has been very vocal in the fact that he said that he would not consider getting rid of the filibuster completely because he, like many Republicans as well, are saying You're not, the Democrats aren't always going to be in the majority. And the last thing that you need and want is the majority coming through and just ramming every single policy through that they want to get through uh, because it makes for pretty bad policy making. So, uh, he did say, however, that he would be open to changing the filibuster, basically making it more quote painful to use. So the idea behind Joe Manchin is, or what he's proposing is basically, listen, I don't think that we should get rid of the filibuster completely because it's a helpful tool for the house or um, for the Senate minority party to have. However, it shouldn't be something that they have the opportunity to use every single time that it comes around, uh, a bill comes around that they want to block, that the Democrats have proposed, or if they do decide they want to use it on every single thing, it's going to make it incredibly difficult for them to get any type of policy pushed through or for them to actually have any negotiations on anything because they're the ones doing all of the filibuster. So in order to actually change the rules of the filibuster, they would need the Democrats would only need 50 votes plus the one from Kamala Harris. So Joe Manchin literally stands in the way of the Democrats doing this. Uh, and Kristen Sinema as well has come out as a Democrat and said that she wouldn't support it. So the idea being put forward by Joe Manchin is to basically bring back the talking filibuster. In the 1970s, uh, the current filibuster rules were put in place that kind of outline and require uh, only 60 votes, so three-fifths of the Senate in order for a bill to be passed, and if something needs to be, or if the minority party there wants to filibuster something, they simply just write in and say, we want to filibuster this, we want to block it, and it's basically like it's called a silent filibuster, where they say that they want to block it. And then uh, the House, you know, can decide either to or the Senate majority leader can then decide to continue to go in on a vote and it's not going to actually pass or things, you know, get pushed around. They negotiate and the, the law gets changed a bit or the legislation gets changed. So now you can basically filibuster something as a minority po policy or minority party by simply just saying that you want to block the passage of the legislation. You aren't required to speak on the floor for a long period of time unless the majority party decides to bring it to the floor for a vote and an argument anyways, uh, in which cases, you know, during the arguments you can argue for about as long as you want. 
The reason why the talking filibuster was done away with was because there were a number of senators that used it to talk for a very, very long period of time. And uh, it started to take up and block the passage of a lot of other things that the majority party wanted and needed to be able to get through. So a talking filibuster essentially would require for the minority party that wants to block the legislation to stand up in front of the Senate floor and talk nonstop until the majority party decides to either give up on it or just wait it out, okay, until the minority party eventually breaks. It essentially would just lead to a perseverance of wills, which is, you know, pretty much what the rule was before the 1970s. The problem is, like was mentioned in the video, this can lead to a lot of things not getting done and honestly a lot of dead time in the Senate that would be a complete waste, okay? It wouldn't. It would get in the way of a whole lot of uh, important nominations getting through. Uh, get in the way of debate over a large amount of incredibly important things that need to be passed. It would also continue to get worse and worse, depending on how obstinate the minority party would want to be. And up until this point, the Republican Party has chosen to be incredibly obstinate about a lot large majority of the policies that the Democrats are wanting to push through. They haven't been willing to negotiate on a lot of things. Uh, they haven't been willing to, you know, to bend any of their, any of the policies, uh, that they have to be able to accommodate or compromise at all. And to the Republicans credit, the Democrats haven't really done that much as, as either, right? They haven't really come to the table and wanted to negotiate a lot either. Both parties are just at odds. And they're refusing to reach across the aisle. So the Democrats are basically sitting here and they're like, well, listen, Mitch McConnell during the Obama administration blocked almost every single thing that he possibly could through the use of the filibuster. And right now, we don't want for that to happen anymore because we have both houses of Congress, both chambers of Congress, and we, we also have the presidency, right? Like we have the legislative and we have the executive branch. We want to be able to get our policy pushed through and we don't want Mitch McConnell standing in the way. So I personally am in support, as I've said before, in keeping the filibuster because I think that giving the minority policy or party in our pol political system not only a seat at the table but also a say in legislation that is passed is incredibly important because – we are in a republic right now, and we want the entirety of our country to be represented in by their representatives in Congress. Minority and majority parties change all the time. More than likely, in the midterms in 2022, the Democrats will fall back out of power in the House or the Senate. Okay, More than likely. It's historically what has happened. I don't want majority parties coming in and basically controlling everything from top to bottom because that is not how good policy gets through. There needs to be the 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 reaching across the aisle, the sharing of ideas, the arguing back and forth, the uh, the parrying of creating and sculpting good legislation. Because if you don't have that, there will only be a certain portion of the country that benefits from the legislation, and that will be the constituents of the majority party. Okay. I don't think that that is a beneficial way to run a government. I just don't. And I don't think that that's what our government was founded on. The purpose of the Senate is for every single state to have equal representation within Congress. Okay? That's why you have to have, you know, that 60 vote threshold in order to be able to get things like legislation pushed through. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's hop on into our third story and last story, story number three. So this is a bit of a smaller story, I guess, but the Biden administration sets out on the Hope is Here tour. So Biden and Kamala get started on their tour. 
They've got their spouses with them. They're going across the country. They're campaigning for the COVID stimulus that was just passed. And in a lot of ways, this is just a gigantic PR stunt. Biden is hoping that he can really win some favor with the general public and that it hopefully will approve, improve his approval rating. So let's hop in real quick. This is Bloomberg doing some reporting on this now. The president promised help is on the way. And today, help has arrived. Help has arrived for the workers who lost their jobs. Help has arrived for the students who've been stuck at home. Help has arrived for the families that have struggled to put food on their table. And for the small businesses that have struggled to keep their doors open. Help has arrived, America. Okay, so that was Kamala Harris standing up kicking off the help the hope is here or help is here i'm sorry dude that's a tongue twister the help is here tour that is uh basically going to be just the big i mean gangbusters like we're helping out all of america look at us we're the democrats we are killing it so as many thought would happen biden was able to rush through an absolutely gangbuster stimulus bill through budget reconciliation and is using it as a big opportunity to grow support and the amazing thing is the republicans are kind of just sitting quiet and they're like i don't really know what to do about this this doesn't really look great so all the republican pundits you can sit there and they can crap on Biden all that they want. But Joe Biden knows optics. The man has been in politics for too long to not know how optics work, okay? Not one Republican voted for the COVID stimulus package that was passed. Because honestly, and in their you know, if we're you know being fair here, it was an absolutely unbelievable amount of extra stuff that was crammed into this thing. And there's no way that you can call yourself a fiscal conservative and vote for what was passed in budget reconciliation with this $2 trillion COVID stimulus that was just passed. It was an incredible amount of stuff in that. Okay. But the stimulus bill itself is very, very popular amongst Americans. So a new Pew Research poll conducted last week found that 70% of Americans supported the relief, including 41% amongst Republicans. As I have said before, people love getting them some, quote, free money from Uncle Sam. Everybody loves it. So the Democrats are telling everyone that they are there, that they are to thank for those checks getting sent out. And honestly, they're right. Okay. The Republicans wouldn't come to the table at all. They wouldn't negotiate. They wouldn't try to pare things down to try and move things around. And I, I get it. The Democrats realized that they were the ones that had the power. They rushed it through with uh, budget reconciliation. However, the Republicans have not played their hand well with this at all, because they basically were just like, no, we're not, we're, we're, we don't, we don't think there's any need for it. This is ridiculous. You guys are spending way too much money. We don't want to seat at the table with this. If you guys are going to pass it, you're going to do it on your own. So um, now Biden is, he's making the Republicans pay for it. So he campaigned on getting the stimulus out. He's actually done it. And now he's got to go out and gloat about it a good bit. And there is some serious gloating going on. So Jan O'Malley Dillon, uh, who is uh, one of the, she's one of the big wigs there in the White House, wrote, uh, we'll be putting surrogates and senior administration officials on local TV, uh, on local TV and markets around America. We'll mobilize our coalition of over 400 supportive mayors and governors, Democrats and Republicans alike, to talk about what the plan means for them and their communities. We'll continue to engage organized labor, the business community and other groups to reinforce why the rescue plan is vital in getting Americans back to work. So they are really activating the troops here 
And they're getting Americans, trying to get Americans pumped up about this thing. And it is all because they're trying to educate, quote unquote, the American public about all of the new COVID stimulus that they now have available to them. So he is making sure, also Biden, he's not an idiot, to hit all the states where there are going to be Senate races next year that the Democrats want to win. He's going to be in Nevada. He's going to be in Colorado, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Biden says that one of the reasons... Why he wants to do this right now is because he remembers back to the 2009 recovery plan that Joe Biden supposedly was, you know, one of the founding crafters of. And he talks about how that recovery after the 2008 financial crisis wasn't very popular. And he says the reason why it wasn't popular is because him and Obama didn't go out and campaign and convince the American people how great that recovery plan was. He doesn't mention the fact that the recovery plan was pretty trash in a lot of ways. <laughs> so now Joe Biden has decided, listen, if we're going to have a recovery from all this coronavirus, if we're going to have a recovery from all this, I want it to look good. We need the American to Americans to think that this is the good because it is incredibly clear that the Republicans had zero hand in this thing being passed. So we can take ownership of it as the Democrats. And if we go out and tell Americans about all the great things that this COVID stimulus bill does, the only people that they can look to to say why it's passed is us. And that is going to look very, very good going into those midterm elections towards the end of next year. So Joe Biden is playing his hand as best as he possibly can right now. He wants to get the troops mobilized. He wants to get all the Democrats out there convincing their communities and talking to their people about how great Biden has come out and provided for the needs of all these people that are hurting right now. And the optics of it look very, very good. There was wide bipartisan support for wanting a stimulus package passed. And Joe Biden is now able to take responsibility for it in a way that especially Donald Trump wasn't able to do so last year. So... We'll have to see how it all pans out. I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's definitely is going to help Joe Biden's approval rating here over the next month or two, though, uh, without a doubt. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our third story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our last segment, my favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week, this is going to sound so stupid, <laughs> but uh in, in Columbia, if you are familiar with the area, there's a street called Elmwood, and on Elmwood is, I would say, arguably one of the worst and best Bojangles that I have that anyone has ever been to in their life. This is the type of Bojangles that you can go to, and uh, you get the level of service that you would expect and that nobody even speaks to you the entire time. I have gone to the drive-thru before ordered my meal and never had a word spoken to me, but I still got my meal and paid and left. That type of service, right? So today, I or yesterday, I'm sorry, I pulled up to the drive-thru and there was a man sitting in a little motorized wheelchair in the drive-thru line at this Bojangles <laughs> and ordered through the drive-thru from his chair, went around to the front and picked it up in his chair. I was absolutely blown away. I took a picture because I was absolutely cracking up over it because this guy was just chilling. You could tell that he'd done it before. He had his money in his hand. He was ready to go through and get him some chicken. I don't blame him. That's the same reason why I was there. So I was absolutely cracking up at the fact that like Bojangles chicken is absolutely delicious. And it doesn't matter how crazy the drive-thru gets, you still going to go back and get you some chicken because it is 
so good. So that made me smile, even though it is super dumb. I felt like I wanted to share it. So with all that, that is the end of the show today. Thank you so much for stopping by, for checking us out, and for listening in. As always, y'all remember to go on Instagram and find me at Split the Difference Podcast. I am on a Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference and my website at splitthedifference.com. Drop me some likes and subscribes, some, some five-star reviews. All those things go such a long way in getting me in the ears of those that may not have had the opportunity to hear me so far. I think it grows our audience a ton, and it also lets me know what kind of content that y'all like to hear as well. As always, y'all remember we are going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are all always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.